to our listeners. Uh, welcome to our first episode of First Hand from First Gen. Today we have a Mr. Jonathan Chang here to speak with us. Jonathan, would you like to say hello? Hi, everyone. We'll just jump right into it then. So we want to know first, you know, where you're originally from, where you went to law school, where you went to undergrad, and if you have any other advanced degrees, basically questions about your background and your education. Sure. So I was born in New Jersey and I grew up in Taiwan. So I spent all my formative years, first through 12th grade in Taiwan. Uh, I went to college uh, back in New Jersey at Rutgers and I went to law school at Cardozo in New York City. Wow, that's awesome. I'm actually from New Jersey as well. Nice. You went to Cardozo Law School. I'm wondering how you ended up. I know your career started in Boston and we'll get to that in a moment, but we we're wondering how you ended up in Boston. I ended up in Boston because that's where I found a job, to be honest. Um, you know, I uh, I graduated in 2011, and um, that was sort of in the depths of the the recession, the last recession, and it was it was hard to find a job. And I was expecting to be in New York City or New Jersey. That's where I took my bars, uh, bar exams. That's where I passed the bar. Um, but I had applied outside of New York City and had applied to like one job in Boston, and uh, that was at Ropes and Gray. That's the that's the job I wound up getting, and I've been you know eternally thankful to be able to work there because not only was it a great firm, but it was it was the practice area I was looking for in antitrust. We actually that's a great segue into my next question: is can you speak a little bit more to what antitrust work looks like? I know um, some people have the impression that it's a very siloed current practice area. And so we're just wondering if you can speak to that. Sure. So I think of antitrust in, in two ways. There are the antitrust litigators who work on like cartel matters. Uh, and then there are the sort of regulatory antitrust lawyers who shepherd sort of big M&A deals through the, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice. And so I'm more in the latter category. Actually, I should say I'm completely in the latter category. Um, so, you know, I've worked on, I guess the big deal I worked on was a few years ago, Staples tried to acquire Office Depot um, and we, we represented Staples on that deal. And it was an interesting deal for me because it was, it kind of, it ran the gamut. So we did something called an HSR filing. That's sort of, um, sort of the filing that the agency, the FTC and the DOJ get to see. Then it ran through the sort of the full gamut that, uh, full life cycle of a deal that it can run through, uh, which is a, something called a second request, which is a broad subpoena for all the documents and testimony of the company. So kind of going to the company's um, headquarters, interviewing executives, doing doc review, uh, going in for depositions. Then at the end of that, um, going through a litigation process, which means going to depositions with third parties, and then finally going to federal court for a preliminary injunction hearing, and then going through that process and preparing cross-examinations for the partners and things like that. So um, that's in a nutshell what I do. Um, sometimes it's, you know, a very small part of that, you know, it doesn't go the full length. Sometimes it's the full length. Um, and typically I work on anywhere between six and maybe 20 deals at a time. So it's, it's all different types of deals, all different types of industries and all, all different types of sort of, um, different milestones and different deals. So it's, it's pretty interesting and it's, it runs the gamut in terms of different, um, different sectors, different segments and different types of clients. So that's what keeps it interesting for me. 
That sounds very interesting. It sounds like you cover a lot of different areas. I'm wondering how you decided that that was something that you wanted to pursue. Well, I knew going into law school because I had worked at um, a law firm for two years as a paralegal before law school. I knew I had a bias against litigation, and this is not to say that litigation is not a good practice. I just knew for me, it, it didn't fit my personality and the way I like to work. So I knew going into law school, I, I, I didn't want to be a pure litigator, um, but I didn't know what else there was. And I knew there was something called corporate law. I didn't know exactly what that was. And then I, I think it was at one of the law school events that I spoke to someone who was an, an antitrust lawyer doing what I do now, so the antitrust M&A. And he, you know, what he said sounded really interesting because it kind of, to me, sounds like it sits in the middle of litigation. You can have sort of some antitrust matters, go to litigation. Um, but it's also you're at the forefront of some of these corporate issues because these are big M&A transactions. And I thought that's, that was kind of interesting because sort of it straddles both worlds. And um, and so he encouraged me to kind of seek out an internship. So that's what I wound up doing. I worked at the Federal Trade Commission. I interned at the Federal Trade Commission in law school as well as in the New York Attorney General's office in the Antitrust Bureau. And those were the kind of the formative internships for me that made me realize that this was a practice area I wanted to pursue. Wow, that's excellent. I know a lot of our listeners um, are told often that doing a summer associate, you know, a summer associate at a bigger firm is kind of the only way in there. And I'm hearing that that's not your case. You ended up applying to Ropes and Gray in their antitrust practice area after having experiences at the FTC. And you said the New York Attorney General's office? That's right. What did that look like? I mean, in terms of coming in to Ropes as not as a summer? Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. I think most people think of sort of the, what we call the big law path as sort of, you know, there's a very narrow path. And if you're not on that very narrow path after your 1L year, you know, getting that OCI interview and, and working at a big firm that you're not going to get in. Um, and I think for a lot of people, at least in my class, it seemed like that that really wasn't the case, including myself. You know, a lot of people, because of the recession, you know, class sizes went down. The class before me, they rescinded a lot of offers and big law firms for people because they, it just wasn't the demand. And then in my class year, they were the class sizes were just smaller. So a lot of people didn't get positions. So I think a lot of us, you know, did not start off in big law. And some of us have wound up, you know, in big law because of the experiences we had that were relevant, you know, sort of later on as the economy recovered. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's just, part of where the economy was at that time. And, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm thankful that I had the experience I had uh, outside of big law, and I think it served me well. Um, and it serves me well right now. You use the term big law a lot. A lot of our lis- listeners are going to be 1Ls, and I don't think they're very familiar with what big law even is. So in your own words, how would you define it? Yeah, I, I think there's, uh, I think maybe the, the top 50, top 100 law firms i would sort of think of as as big law and they tend to be you know um they tend to have a a certain sort of hiring practice and that hiring practice is that you know there's a summer associate program uh as you alluded to earlier and then you know at the end of your 1l summer you do that interview process you do the summer associate program your second year summer and then you start there um you know you start working at the firm after your 3l year after you take the bar and then after that, there was kind of like, you know, everything else, um, you know, different, you know, some some mid-sized firms and smaller firms, you know, follow that model. Some do not. Some governmental agencies follow that model. You know, some do not. And same thing for for nonprofits. So 
Um, but I think big law just tends to be, tends to have a little bit more of prominence, I think, in law schools for whatever reason. Um, and so that's, it's its own sort of a category, in my opinion. from big law in general and moving towards your experience in big law. So you started at Ropes and Gray. Did you move immediately over to Sherman after that? Or am I pronouncing that right? Sherman or Sherman? Yep. Sherman. Sherman. Um, so I was at Ropes and Gray for three and a half years. Then I worked at a law firm called Wild Gotchel, uh, Wild Gotchel Manges for four years. And then I moved over to Sherman recently, actually, in, in late March of 2020. So I've been here about five months. In March of 2020, at the beginning of coronavirus. <laughs> That's right. Oh wow. Yeah, I, I um, I have not. I don't have an employee badge. I haven't stepped foot in the office. Um, and I haven't. I've met like a few people from like the interview in January or February, but I've met um almost nobody at the firm in person. So it's been interesting. What a unique way to begin your new position. What has that been like? Do you? like being fully remote do you wish you had been there at least a little bit in the beginning you know it's it's interesting i think a lot of people i've come across in the last few months have asked me that question but if you put yourself in like march of 2020 like no one was thinking about you know am i gonna do well on my first day of work i mean everyone was like are we are we gonna survive this um sort of like so i think there are issues much bigger than like you know, onboarding at a firm and, and meeting people and getting situated, you know, it, you know. so I think it, for me, it, it wasn't a big deal in terms of starting at a new place, just because the world seemed like it was collapsing at the end of March. Um, and, you know, we have a daughter at home and she was at home full time and, you know, both my wife and I were working. And so we had just much bigger issues that we were worrying about at the time. Um, but I have to say, like, you know, in terms of starting here, it's it's been great. And I think in, in part, you know, because everyone realized late March, you know, things were so crazy that I think people have been extremely gracious and sort of get, making sure that I'm situated right um, and getting me all the resources I need to sort of be successful at my job right now. That's great. That's really great to hear. And you're absolutely right. There were a lot of problems going on in March. So it's really, it puts things in perspective. Move a little bit away from March 2020 and a little bit more to right now. We're wondering what the structure of your office is like in terms of the hierarchy. Is that hierarchy rigid? Is it flexible? I know a lot of our listeners, like I said, are going to be 1Ls and maybe even some 2Ls out there that don't necessarily know what the chain of command looks like from all the way starting back from a summer associate up to a partner. So we were wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. So the way it's structured is that there are, you come into the firm you know, as an associate and you sort of, there's an associate path, uh, which is typically at most you know, large law firms in big law, it's between eight and 10 years. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of that, and it's almost solely by sort of seniority. Um, and so there's really no shortcuts other than sort of hitting hitting all your marks along the way and sort of reaching that eight or 10 year mark. And then at the eight or 10 year mark, um, there's an opportunity for promotion. 
And that promotion is either to counsel the firm, some firms call it of counsel, some people, some firms call it special counsel. Um, and then, you know, and then there is partner. Um, and so, and then you can go from counsel to partner, um, you know, or you can go directly to partner. And so that's typically the way it works at a large law firm. And, you know, some firms during the associate career, you may have different um, titles, like you may be associate and senior associate. Some firms, you know, the firms I worked at didn't draw a distinction between that. Um, but generally those are sort of like the, basically the two or three titles within a firm. Um, and so in, in that hierarchy, I would say it's fairly rigid. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not a law firm historian, so I can't tell you how long that's been in place, but that is basically the model for most of the large law firms. And I think when you go down in size, I think there might be a little bit more flexibility um, in terms of sort of not having to wait sort of the rigid eight or 10 years um, and being able to sort of maybe shortcut that process a little bit. Um, but generally that's sort of the hierarchy and the career path of an associate at a large law firm. Wow, thank you. That was a very clear line that you drew right there. Um, and just for our listeners to clarify, John is a counsel, am I correct in that? Right. Right. You spoke extensively about what it is that you do as an antitrust attorney, and we're wondering if you can speak a little bit towards what the most challenging parts of your practice are and what the most rewarding parts of your practice are. I know you mentioned that you really like how it has a little bit of a mesh between transactional work and litigation. Maybe expound on that or maybe talk about another thing that you find rewarding. Yeah, so I think the most rewarding parts of my job is is what you had mentioned, what I mentioned earlier. It's sort of being able to work across industries on sort of, for a lot of these companies where I'm working on, these are, you know, some of their, you know, most important deals uh, for people. And typically the deals that, you know, where you have to make this, what we call an HSR filing, a uh, filing before the antitrust agencies, they have to be above a certain dollar size. Right now it's close to $100 million. So for some of these, you know, companies, this is like their first HSR filing. For some of them, it's their largest, you know, deal they've ever done. Um, and so, you know, that swath of deals I see tends to be on, like the larger and some of the largest deals for a company. Um, and sort of to, to interact with the client and sort of guide them through that process. And oftentimes in sort of working with in-house counsel and with their executives, people like, you know, the CFO or people on the finance team or the deal team um, and sort of working with them at this very critical time under high, you know, high, you know, time pressure. Um, I think find that very kind of rewarding because there's some expertise that you're bringing to the table. Um, and, you know, starting when you're 25 or 27 as the first year associate guiding people who are like, 40, 50, 60 through this process who don't have experience in it. And you as someone who's coming in in your, you know, mid, late twenties, you know, within six months, you're kind of guiding people through that. I think there's something that's rewarding about that. Um, in terms of challenging uh, aspects that are the most challenging f for me, I think it's just um, being tied to sort of the timeline of an M&A deal, which, you know, for a lot of people, they may not know what that's like, but that is potentially you know, 24 seven, because, you know, when you're negotiating a deal, it's, you know, it could be Friday night, you get, you know, something comes in and says, and the client says, we need to turn this around by tomorrow, Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. So it, that means you're working Friday night till Saturday morning at 10. And then you could have something come in on Sunday, you know, for the same deal. Um, and, you know, they, something comes in at Sunday at three o'clock, they said, you need something by five o'clock. And that could be one of 
10 deals you're working on. So you just don't really know as much uh, on the on the antitrust M&A side as much as uh, compared to sort of litigation where those fire drills are going to be. Um, but you kind of, I think the most challenging part for me is there are always fire drills and you kind of always have to be on and sort of always have to sort of be on your A game and, and be ready to sort of give kind of short and crisp guidance to your client when they need it. That's a really great segue into my next question. I was just going to ask what your work-life balance looks like. It seems like you were saying that this is a very fire drill oriented practice. And so a lot of our listeners, myself included, is, are very interested in how you manage that. We know you mentioned that you have a daughter. Um, and so we were just wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, it's it's tough. I, I think it's tough um, to manage that. and it's tough both, you know, whether you're in a large law firm in antitrust practice, or, you know, I have a lot of colleagues and former colleagues who have been in the government agencies at the FTC or DOJ. I mean, they may not face sort of the exact same sort of challenges, but they have very similar challenges in terms of the timelines they have to face because they have statutory deadlines that, you know, for example, in the first 30 days, they have to come to a decision about whether or not they need to issue a second request or not. So they're, and they're, working on multiple deals as well. So it's not unique to large law firms. It's it's just the type of work, you know, that um, that I do and people in this field do um, that, that makes it challenging. Um, but in terms of getting to the question about work-life balance, it is, it is tough. Um, I think the way it works in terms of getting work-life balance is, you know, when you know you're going to be out or if you, you are going to take vacation that, you know, you give people a heads up and you give people a heads up with enough time um, so that there's, they can build in redundancies and staff people on things. But the week to week is, you know, is you have to kind of be on call uh, 24-7. And that's, that's the nature of the work. We'll move a little bit away from your current practice and a little bit more towards what you're looking for in the future for your career. So first, to lead into that, I'm wondering what the typical long longevity is of someone who does antitrust work in terms of staying in antitrust work. Yeah, it's a good question. I think most people who get into antitrust work, um, most people I know who, who've gone into antitrust work do not leave. Um, and in part, it's a specialty practice. So it's not like, you know, most firms who have, you know, a large corporate practice and a large, you know, M&A, or sorry, a large litigation practice, and people tend to default into one of those groups and then realize they want to do something else. Um, typically, for antitrust, you know, it's people come into the group because that's what they want to do. And so we, as, you know, people at the firm hiring have sought them out because, you know, because maybe, for example, they've worked at a governmental agency before, or they've written something in law school that's on antitrust. Um, or, you know, the opposite, you know, the candidates coming in say, you know, when they're doing a summer here or, or else or otherwise that they want to do antitrust. So I, I, would, I think most people end up doing it uh, for their career is, is basically what I've seen. It could be in different roles, though. It could be, you know, at a large law firm, at a mid-sized law firm, um, could be in a governmental agency um, or in-house, although in-house is a little bit less for antitrust. You kind of answered my next question. I was going to ask where you see yourself in five years, but I'm going to safely assume in antitrust work. <laughs> That's right. Yep. That's great. That's great. Um, so we're getting close to the end of our time together, but I do want to ask a couple of first generation oriented questions. So 
first off, I was wondering if you could speak to your experience as a first-generation law student, how you decided you wanted to even go to law school, and what that looked like coming in, not having any framework for what law school was going to be. Yeah, that's it's an interesting challenge, and I think a lot of different people, uh, first-generation or not, come to a decision about going to law school in all different types of ways. Uh, for me, it was more in undergrad when I was trying to figure out which major I wanted. Um, you know, I thought about law and I thought about what I wanted to major in and I wanted to do political science um, and history and, you know, choosing sort of part-time jobs and summer internships. Um, they wound up sort of towards the end of college revolving around working in different law offices because I knew I wanted to be uh, or pursue law school. So that's what I did, you know, in college, after college, you know, between college and law school. And um, I think those experiences for me helped, you know, helped me realize this is what I wanted to do. Although I have to say that like in a lot of ways, I don't think working at a law firm necessarily <laughs> prepares you for law school, like the law school experience itself. Um, so it, there's, you know, it's, um, it's, it's two, it's, it's two related things, but they're sort of different. And I think law school is, um, it's its own beast. Um, and I think for, for first generation people, I think understanding, like getting as much information going into law school about what that process is like, how your three years are going to look, what's going to happen after your first semester, your first summer, your second summer, um, you know, proactively getting that information before, you know, day one, I think puts you in the best position to succeed in law school. Um, law school anecdotes or horror stories as a first gen? Um, I think I made a Maybe not horror stories, maybe something happier. <laughs> I, mean, I think I made a lot of the mistakes typical, you know, people make going to law school. And I don't know if it's first gen specific, you know, um, but, you know, I don't think I took my first semester as, you know, seriously as I should have. Um, and it did make me wonder a lot about whether I wanted to go through the, you know, the rest of the two and a half years through law school. Um, and, you know, I think some of the interview stuff, you know, I think um, understanding that process a little bit more going into it, um, I think I got better as I, I went along. But if I like sought out more guidance, I think even going into my first, you know, uh, my first OCI after my 1L summer, I think that would have been helpful. I think those are sort of like looking back, some of the things that I wish I had done better and maybe is commonplace among, you know, uh, first generation um law students and lawyers, but those are things that, you know, I look back at the, not horror stories, but things that I think, you know, are common mistakes by people who just don't have sort of maybe the institutional knowledge or the connections um, to kind of, you know, walk through that process. close with this we always love to ask our interviewees what piece of advice they would give first generation law students who are listening it sounds like you want to say something related to gathering information and getting ahead of the curve and I'll give you that opportunity to give that piece of advice now 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, I think it's, yeah, it's, you're exactly right. It's, it's those points. I think for, for 1Ls, I would say, you know, your grades are really important. And so, you know, it can't be, can't be overstated. So I think focus on studying, getting good grades and, and staying focused. And I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of your first year in law school. That's a big transition for a lot of people. Like for me, I didn't move cities, uh, but even, you know, moving from a working environment back to school was a big transition for me. But I think, you know, understanding that your first year, you should be focusing as much as possible and sort of being as good as you can academically. And then I think for two L's and three L's, um, really focusing on what you want to do if you don't know um, going into law school, if you haven't figured it out after your first year summer, uh, for one L summer, um, spending a lot of time, whether that's talking to people or volunteering for things like the ABA or your local bar association or writing articles, sort of credentialing yourself if there's something you've already identified, um, but really figuring out what you want. Because I think, uh, I think the biggest mistake I, I see a lot of people make is they haven't figured out by the end of law school what they want to do. And some of them have jobs lined up and that's great, but they wind up sort of leaving very quickly because that's not what they want to do when they start at square one. And so I think the more you can do as a two on three on terms of figuring out and narrowing down what you want to do and what, what interests you, um, the better. That's really great advice. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and your advice. No problem. Happy talking to you. First Gen would like to thank John again for being an excellent first guest. This episode would not be possible without our wonderful faculty advisor, Professor Adam Eckhart. Thank you, Professor Eckhart, for introducing John to First Gen and for making this interview possible. First Gen would also like to thank Caitlin Fitzgerald for designing our gorgeous logo, which is viewable every time a listener pulls up the first hand from First Gen page. And of course, thank you to all our listeners. Tune in next month to hear firsthand from First Gen.